Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about The White Lotus. We're going to be pulling apart not only season two, but also season one. And we're going to be talking about how do you build an engine for a limited series and how to apply those concepts to any kind of series, whether it's a TV drama, a TV comedy, a dramedy, or anything in between. So let's start by talking about what an engine actually is. You see, when you sell a TV pilot, you are not just selling a great story. You're actually selling a blueprint. You're selling a model for a kind of storytelling that can produce episode after episode after episode after episode, and where each episode will feel both the same and also different. When you tune into your favorite shows, you're coming for a feeling. You want to feel a certain way. You're coming to hang out with specific characters and you want them to act a certain way. But you also want to feel like you're going on a journey and being surprised. So you want it to feel different, but feel the same at the same time. And what the engine is, is the collection of elements that allow a show to both feel similar and different at the same time. In a way, every show is like a franchise, just like a McDonald's or a Ruth Chris Steakhouse or an Applebee's. They have a feeling to them, and they have certain elements that are designed to generate that feeling. And while you can mix and match some elements, you can play with them, you can change them, if you change too many elements, you break your engine, and your show either peters out dramatically because you no longer have the dramatic engine, or you end up losing your audience because you no longer have the feeling. Now, normally, when a limited series is conceived, what used to be called a mini-series, normally we're thinking of it almost like a giant movie. And this is different than a comedy series or a drama series or a dramedy series. We're thinking about it as a giant movie. So if you think of each season of White Lotus, each season is almost like a giant movie. And you can almost think of each episode like an act in that movie. And each episode is designed to feel both similar to the acts that preceded it and also different so that your interest gets held. Each episode is designed to kind of double down or in improv terms, yes and the stuff that's happened before until everything's boiled into a giant mess that gets resolved in the final episode. So in a way, a limited series structure is very similar to a movie structure. While a movie might have seven acts, the way I teach it, a limited series like White Lotus actually has six acts in the first season, seven acts in the second, which are just big movements that we call episodes that are broken down into tinier acts inside of those episodes and scenes and all that kind of good stuff. So on the simplest level, a limited series is really just a giant movie and while we do have to think about the engine for each episode, normally when you conceive a limited series, you don't conceive a season engine. In other words, you're conceiving it as a single product, not as something you're going to replicate season after season after season. But of course, what tends to happen when a limited series is successful is that we want it again. And in that way, the limited series ends up turning into a series. 
One of the big differences between a series and a, and a movie, of course, is that movies are designed to create catharsis. When we get to the end of a movie, we want to feel a feeling of completion, a journey, an empathy. We want to feel like we're not alone in the world. We've gone through this journey with this character and we've reached an end. And that end, whether it's tragic or comic or somewhere in between, allows us to feel like we've purged something in ourselves, right? This is the old Greek idea of catharsis. Whereas traditional TV comedies and TV dramas and TV dramedies work by refusing the catharsis, right? We're not going to get in Breaking Bad, we're not going to get catharsis until we get to the very final episode and Walter finally admits that he likes it, right? We're not going to get that catharsis until we've made it through the entire series. Whereas a feature film, by the end of the movie, we're probably going to have that feeling of catharsis, of completion. And similarly... In a limited series, by the time we get to the end of the season, usually we're going to have a feeling of completion. And for that reason, it's harder to build an engine for a limited series than it is for a traditional pilot. A traditional pilot just has to tangle up a knot, uh, and each season needs to just deepen the entanglement so we can keep on going forever. Whereas a limited series is designed to give us a feeling of completion. So how do we start it up all over again? after we've killed a bunch of the elements and brought everything to a reasonable conclusion. The good news is, as you can see from The White Lotus, you can turn anything into a series. You can turn a feature film into a series of feature films, as you can see from Avatar, if you've listened to my Avatar and Avatar The Way of Water podcast. You can turn a feature film into a TV series. In fact, there's even a name for this, uh, it's called a backdoor pilot when you create a two-hour TV movie or a feature film with an idea to spin it off into a series. And, of course, you can turn a limited series into a series. And the way you do that is by asking yourself, what are the primary elements that made this series work? And how can I replicate them in a second season in a way that's going to feel the same but also different? Now, there are some series that have very little variations between seasons. If you look at Gilligan's Island, right? Season after season after season after season after season, and they're going to do the same darn thing, right? You're going to get, uh, you're going to get a new way to get off the island with a bunch of coconuts. Uh, the team is going to come together to try to follow the professor's plan. The howls are going to go live the life of the 1%. Gilligan's going to screw it up, the skipper's going to lose his shit, and we're on to the next episode. And there's very little variation. In other series like BoJack Horseman, you can see a lot more complication. Or in Succession, if you've listened to my Succession podcast, you can see a lot more complication and variation of the way that each season is made to feel similar but also different. In a show like The Wire... You can actually kill off half of the characters and instead replicate the model of out-of-the-box thinkers in Baltimore. You go to a different area of Baltimore. First season is going to be in drugs. Then we're going to go to the docks. We're going to go to politics. We're going to go to education. We're going to go to drug legalization. We're going to follow the same concept 
to different places. We're going to have two out-of-the-box thinkers, one from the side of crime, one from the side of organized society. Those two out-of-the-box thinkers are going to revolutionize their world. And then in the second half of the season, they are going to be crushed by bureaucracy, by the desire to not change, by apathy, by self-interest. They're changing the world. Ideas are going to be destroyed, right? So there are many, many, many ways to build an engine. You can build an engine with great variation or with very little variation, but each season needs to feel like the season before, even as it feels different. And what that means is you've got to know what are the elements that are drawing your audience, which are generally the same elements that are drawing you. You have to ask yourself, what are the elements that I can replicate? And what are the elements that have been played out? So if we look at the first season of The White Lotus, the engine's really simple, right? The engine of each episode. We are watching the world of the worst of the worst of the 1% in this hotel in Hawaii, right? We are basically going to watch a show about how the bullshit of rich, entitled 1% people trickles down to destroy the lives of everyone underneath them. And we're going to track this through four primary relationships. The first relationship we're going to see through the relationship between Armand and Shane. Armand is the smoothest, most in control manager of any swanky high-end hotel in the world. He is brilliant at his job. He is smooth as hell. And he is truly a master in the art of hotel management. But he has never dealt with Shane before. Shane is just a rich, entitled dude who's recently gotten married and all Shane wants in the world is the suite that he was promised. It's the only thing he wants in the world. And we're going to watch Shane destroy his own relationship and Armand's life in this quest. And in each episode, we are going to watch Armand fall apart a little more until he has totally imploded until he is totally self-destructed until he's back on drugs after years of sobriety his hotel has fallen apart and spoiler alert here he's taken a dump in shane's suitcase and been accidentally murdered by shane and you could see that this is a commentary on society right this is a commentary on the inadvertent ways that the entitled one percent end up destroying the lives of people around them. The second relationship we're going to see this through is Shane's relationship with Rachel, his wonderful new bride, who is slowly realizing that she has entered a new class and that she is on the road to becoming a trophy wife and that she may have made a horrible mistake in her marriage. And we're going to watch the way Shane's war with the hotel manager ends up destroying his own honeymoon and breaking the love between these two people. The third relationship that we're going to track is a family, a rich, entitled family who are on their own complicated familial journey with a young boy who's totally addicted to screens who's going to actually find his way in Hawaii, a young girl who doesn't even realize her privilege, 
her best friend with whom she's constantly playing status games, who's going to fall in love with a local boy who works at the hotel and who's going to end up destroying his life in an attempt to help him. And the fourth relationship is the relationship between Tanya, the Jennifer Coolidge character, and Belinda. Tanya is a entitled heiress to $500 million. She has come to this hotel to scatter her mother's ashes. She is a total emotional mess of a human being. And she ends up bonding with Belinda, the spa manager, who has totally changed her life and given her an epiphany. And Tanya is determined to repay Belinda's kindness by helping Belinda achieve her own dream, building her own spa. And slowly we watch Tanya seduce Belinda into thinking that her life can be something more. Until Tanya meets a dude who shows some interest in her. At which point she totally blows off Belinda, destroys her dream in order to ride off into the sunset with a dude who will pay attention to her. So through these four stories, we watch the 1%, not on purpose, but inadvertently through their own blindness and entitlement, completely destroy the lives of everyone below them. And then through that, we thread this little journey of hope that can make us smile a little bit and feel like maybe things are going to be okay. There are also other elements. There's a mystery element. There's a dead body found in the pilot. And then we flash back and we are wondering who committed the murder. And throughout each episode, we are building motive for different characters as we start to go who was killed and by whom. And we're starting to realize that there's probably more than one character here who would like to kill another character. So that's an element of the engine. And then there's a spiritual and locational element to the engine. There is the nature of the spa, the high-endness of it. There's the class differences between the workers and the people who work there. But there's also the spiritual element. There are scenes of just crashing waves, of the environment of Hawaii, of the rowers on the water, right? There are these scenes of the inspiringness of the environment that contrast with the pettiness of the characters in their posh 1% world. So these are the primary elements of the engine of this piece. There are plenty of other elements we can talk about. These are the primary elements that the first season is built around. When we get to the second season of The White Lotus, we got a little problem. So the first season is really built around the devolution of Armand. And he's dead. So that's kind of played out. How do you do that again? You just simply can't build that again in a way that's going to outdo what we've already seen. We've lost this character, and any character we try to create who's like him is going to feel like a, a pale imitation. So when we get to the second season of The White Lotus, there are certain elements that are being replicated one for one. We're going to start out with a murder. And we're going to wonder who committed the murder and who's the body. And over the course of seven episodes this time, 
we are going to build motive for a bunch of different characters to murder. Uh, and we're going to build a little mystery around that murder that ends up playing out in a way that makes us laugh and surprises us, just like in the first season. In the first season, we were in Hawaii. In this season, we're in Sicily. But again, we have a high-end hotel with a high-end clientele and a low-end local workforce who has to deal with their bullshit. So that element is replicated. We're going to have images of crashing waves and the activation of the magic of Italy that gets lost in the pettiness of the 1% people at the hotel. So that element is going to be replicated. We're going to have four primary relationships, although those relationships are going to be a little more complicated this time around. We're going to have four primary relationships through which we tell the story. Um, and just like last time, there's going to be a family relationship. There is going to be a Tanya is going to be back. There's going to be a Tanya relationship. There is going to be a young, hot couple relationship. In fact, it's going to be doubled and complicated, and we'll talk about that. And there is going to be a hotel manager relationship, right? And so we're going to replicate those four elements and complicate it. And there are going to be some more characters woven through. There is going to be local characters interacting with the super wealthy, and those class differences are going to be exploited, although in a slightly different way, just like in the first season. So those elements are going to be replicated. But there are also elements that are going to be quite difficult to replicate. And the biggest of those elements is the theme. White Lotus Season 1 did such a tremendous job with the idea of how the 1% ruined the lives of those below them, that simply doing that again, it's going to be really hard to outdo yourself. And this is an important thing to understand about Engine. While you do want every episode to feel like the ones before, you also want each episode to outdo the ones before. They can't be playing at the same level, or certainly not at a lower level, or we're going to feel disappointed. You want to be constantly outdoing, but how do you outdo what's happened in season one? How do you outdo the shit flowing downhill to the, from the 1% to the people below them beyond what you already did in this nearly perfect first season? So what Mike White does is actually quite brilliant. He actually changes the theme. Yes, we're still going to be playing in the world of the 1% and the unfair disparity of wealth and the pettiness and all the games. But he rebuilds the theme in season two. You see, season two is not about how the 1% destroy the lives of those below them. Season two is about scams and marks. And in season two, we're going to complicate the ideas of season one. We're not only going to see how the 1% scam those below them, we're going to see how the ones below them are trying to scam the 1%. In fact, we're going to watch a bunch of different scams get run by a bunch of different characters and a bunch of different people, be marks, be, be scamming, be marks and scamming, right? We're going to explore this theme of scams and marks, and we're going to find our little bead of hope in in those few moments of authenticity where people are interacting in a way that's not where one person is not a mark and one person is not the scammer. So we have a difference in theme. It's a related theme, but it's a slightly shifted theme. 
And what this is going to do is it's going to allow us to explore these wealth differences and these power differences and the way we destroy each other's lives in a more complicated and different way that can outdo our expectations of the first season, but can still feel similar. It's a different theme taking place inside the same world. There's another element that's going to be quite difficult to replicate, which is Armand. How do you outdo the self-destructive spiral of Armand? How do you outdo a guy shitting in a client's suitcase and getting stabbed accidentally by his own client, right? How, how do you outdo that? How do you outdo Armand's total self-destruction in the wake of one horrible client? You simply can't. And if you try to replicate that element, at first your audience is going to be pleased, but pretty soon they're going to realize, this is boring. I've seen this before. This is predictable. So what Mike White does, even while replicating all these other elements, he does a little switcheroo. Sure, we're going to have a manager character. But this manager is Valentina. And like Armand, she's gay, but we don't even know that at the beginning. In fact, unlike Armand, who's quite comfortable with his sexuality, Valentina has never even been with a woman before. She's simply attracted to women. And unlike Armand, who's the smoothest hotel manager in the world, Valentina's not smooth at all. In fact, she's a little bit offensive, even to her high-end guests. She manages to say the wrong thing all the time. Her employees don't like her. She is constantly stressed out. She is constantly struggling with her job and her attitude. She's a sharp contrast to Armand. And when we see that, there's a part of us that goes... Right? We are expecting that she's going to go through a journey of self-destruction. And she comes right to the edge. But there's another little surprise, which is she's ultimately not going to self-destruct. In fact, she's going to kind of find love, just not in the way that we expected. So we're going to replicate that element, but we're going to replicate it differently. The next relationship we're going to be exploring is the young, hot, happy couple relationship. And it's devolution. And that element is replicated, but it's replicated in a different way. The, the way that uh, Mike White deals with that, because we, we, how the hell do you outdo Shane and Rachel? You simply can't. So we're going to find a very different couple. In fact, we're going to double it. There are going to be two very different couples. There's Harper and Ethan, newly one percenters, right? He's just sold his company. He now has more money than God. And his status has been totally changed. And we have Cameron and Daphne who seem like the perfect couple. Even though they're really shallow. See, Cameron's an old friend of Ethan's from college. And they've invited them to this hotel for a vacation in Sicily. But Harper and Ethan are both kind of convinced that maybe Ethan's a mark. Maybe there's something Cameron wants from him, and maybe this perfect relationship isn't real. And what we're going to watch is we're going to watch Ethan and Harper destroy their own relationship. This time, the problems are actually stemming from both sides of the couple. Ethan doesn't want to have sex with his wife. Harper can't just play nice with Ethan's friends. And the two of them 
can't communicate honestly at all. Meanwhile, Cameron and Daphne seem so, so perfect and so, so happy, except it's slowly kind of dawning on everybody that maybe Cameron's running more than one scam. Maybe he's not just trying to get money out of Ethan. Maybe he's also trying to destroy his marriage. Maybe he also cheats on his wife. And maybe his wife also cheats on him. Maybe everybody's a mark for everybody else. And maybe the trust, which is the only good thing in the relationship between Ethan and Harper, maybe even that trust is going to be destroyed over the course of this series. So you can see it's a variation on the Shane-Rachel relationship, right? The young, hot couple who have it all but make each other miserable because they're caught up in petty bullshit. It's that squared with a double couple, but it's smushed through a different theme, right? This is not about how the uh, inadvertent pettiness of the 1% just destroys everyone below them. This is about scams and scammers, scams and marks. This is about how everyone's a scammer and everyone's a mark for everyone else in some way or another. The third relationship we're going to follow is, of course, a family. An upper 1% wealthy family. In this case, it's going to be three generations in season two. We are going to watch the grandfather, the F. Murray Abraham character, who is a pretty much a failed scam artist, right? He Back in his day, dude used to pick up some women, right? He was a major philanderer on his wife. Now he is certainly doing a good job sexually harassing every woman that he finds, but he's not really able to follow through at his age. We have his son, the Michael Imperioli character, Dominic, who has lost his wife due to cheating, has lost the love of his daughter due to cheating, and he's got his naive son who's kind of traveling with him, who just really can't take a stand, but is so disappointed in his father, this ethical young kid who doesn't really understand why his dad's done all this stuff, and even as he arrives at the hotel, Dominic has already booked a prostitute for the week. Even as he's on the phone trying to reconnect with his wife, he's so addicted to sex. And Dominic's going to go on a wonderful journey where he's going to actually try to make himself a better man. But he's become a mark for this prostitute, um, who's a wonderful character, Lucia and her friend Mia, who she wants to make her money this week. And his desire to change his terrible ways is really getting in the way of her financial plans. And so what Lucia starts to do is to scam her way through all the different generations of this family and all the different clients, starting with Dominic, then working her way to Cameron and Ethan, and then finally finding the ultimate mark, Albi, the sweet innocent son of Dominic with his incredible ethical standards who doesn't even realize she's a prostitute when they sleep with each other for the first time. And she's going to realize, wow, I've got the scam of the century here. And all of that's going to culminate in this wonderful scene. You can watch it. It's uh, between 1225 and 1558 of the final episode where she has convinced poor Albie that she is being hunted by a terrible pimp who's going to kill her if she doesn't come up with $50,000 and that if he, she can just come up the, with the money that maybe she could move to America and be his girlfriend. And there's this wonderful scene where he confronts his father. And Dominic says, come on, Albie, how are you going to make it 
if you're this big of a mark. Uh, and you can see that there in that final episode, Dominic's actually saying the theme. And even Dominic's a mark, not only to Lucia, but to his own son, who is trying to convince him to give him 50 grand by dangling the possibility of maybe putting in a good word with his ex-wife. So you can see the complicated scams and the complicated marks on all these different levels. You can see, once again, we're replicating the world of the locals and the world of the the rich, but this time there's a little flip, right? Because it's not just the rich people making the life of the locals terrible, it's also vice versa, the locals scamming the rich, right? It's, it's about the flow of power back and forth. Meanwhile, we have a little subplot, which is Mia, whose desperate dream is to be a singer who has a beautiful voice and no shot, who gets scammed by Giuseppe, the sleazy, a uh, piano player who's not very talented, um, who ends up having sex with him, thinking that she's going to get a leg up and get to perform. But of course, he has no interest in doing that for her at all. So we have that element threaded through. And then that's going to get wound back in to the relationship with Valentina. So Valentina is madly in love with Isabella, an underling at the hotel. She doesn't know that Isabella is in love with Rocco and, in fact, going to get engaged to get married to him. She sees her as a prospect. And for that reason, she hates Rocco and has always given Rocco a hard time while always praising Isabella. And Isabella might be, might be, uh, Maybe taking a little bit of advantage of Valentina when she shows up and tells Valentina how much she wants to be like her, right? Maybe at that moment, Valentina's also a mark to this sweet girl who wants to move up in her career. But there are some unexpected consequences as Valentina starts to abuse her power to try to get Isabella's attention and a date with her, right? For example, by banishing Rocco. Uh, to a different area of the hotel. So we're starting to see something that looks like it's going to be like the first season, right? We're going to see a different kind of manager devolve. But what actually happens is something different. There's been a running gag between Mia and Lucia, the two local prostitute and semi-prostitute, right? Uh, Lucia is is really working it as a prostitute. Mia is uh, maybe dabbling a little bit uh, and learning that maybe there are some good things that can come out of this. And Mia, after Valentina finds out that Isabella is actually engaged to Rocco, Valentina actually, even though it's devastating for her, ends up doing the right thing and bringing Rocco back so he can work with his future wife. And Mia, who's been fighting through the whole limited series to finally get her chance at the piano, ends up trading sex with Valentina for an opportunity. And while that seems like an exploitation, it's kind of hard to tell who the mark is. Valentina's the mark. Mia's the mark. But oddly, these two end up doing right by each other. Mia ends up getting her gig and getting uh, the sleazy old piano player fired. And 
also end up kind of healing Valentina and introducing her to a different side of herself and the idea that maybe she has to find a real lesbian that she can be with. So you have this kind of lovely, surprising twist on the Armand story. We think it's going one way and it starts to go that way, otherwise we'd be disappointed. But then there's a little flip that makes this season feel new and different and also gives us a little bit of hope. The final replicated element, the fourth relationship, is, of course, Tanya, the Jennifer Coolidge character, who is back. Uh, in the last season, we have watched her completely destroy the life of sweet Belinda, build a dream up that Belinda never dreamed to dream of, and then tear it to the ground, not through any kind of malignancy, just through sheer distraction, stupidity, and desperation for the love of a man. Well, in season two, not only is Tanya back, but so is Greg. The two of them are married by spending a ton of money. She's gotten him the best doctors and cured his cancer, and it looks like he's going to live a long time with a really challenging, emotionally challenging woman that he does not want to have sex with, does not want to be with but who he is stuck to because they have a prenuptial agreement and he doesn't get any money if she leaves him. Tanya has shown up with her kind of young, clueless assistant, Portia. And you can see this is actually a replication of last season. Uh, Portia is the Belinda character, right? She is the character who has small dreams, who is now attached to this woman who's both dependent on her and oblivious to her needs and who is going to constantly choose her husband over any kind of humanity towards her assistant. So Greg is pissed off that Tanya has brought her assistant along, but Tanya is very dependent on Portia. So despite Greg's request that he send her home, instead Tanya just insists that Portia stay in her room. So she's at this beautiful hotel, but she's not even allowed to leave the room to eat. And she keeps on having to sneak out to eat and bumping into Tanya. So we're once again watching this oblivious, desperate, total mess of a woman destroy the life of someone below her because she wants to please a man. So that's a replicated element. But, uh, but a sweet little relationship develops between Portia and Albie. And it seems like these two maybe are going to find love together, right? Maybe something magical is going to happen until she meets this hot, sexy guy, Jack, and totally blows Albie off for him, which, of course, she's not aware of is that she's also a mark for Jack. So we've got marks upon marks upon marks and scams upon scams upon scams. Um, and what Tanya doesn't know is she's also being scammed couple days into their wonderful vacation, Greg takes off for what he claims is a business meeting. And while Tanya is desperate for him to stay, he absolutely refuses. And she is devastated, which makes her need Portia even more. But then a magical thing happens. She discovers a bunch of very high-end gays who seem to really like her. Uh, this man, Quentin, who's just a, a figure of spit and polish, 
who lives in this tremendous mansion, whisks her away for a, a weekend of love and adventure, all, all built around her. It's exactly what she's always needed, right? Someone who appreciates and loves her and thinks she is great. In fact, Quentin has even set her up with it's too good to be true. This young, sexy Italian man who wants to have sex with her, right? It's amazing. It's everything she's dreamed of. She's healing, right? Just like in the first season, she's healing from the terrible wounds of Greg's abandonment. But of course, she's also being scammed because, see, there's a little thing in that prenuptial agreement. If she leaves him, Greg gets nothing. But if she dies... Well, she dies, he gets everything. And what she doesn't know is that there's a prior relationship between Quentin and Greg. And the two are actually colluding to first seduce her and then kill her and make it look like an accident. And what's wonderful, she's such a mess of human being that she's actually put it together but she's still unable to take any steps to rescue herself. She drops her cell phone into the water. She's stuck on this boat dining with these people that she knows are going to kill her. She makes this really pathetic dash to the bathroom, which she doesn't even go to the bathroom. She ends up locking her in a room, finding her young lover Nicolo's bag, which of course is filled with rope and duct tape and all the things he's going to use to murder her, and a gun. And then an amazing thing happens. This woman who has not been able to handle anything, not even the tiniest thing, ends up blasting her way out, killing all the people who want to kill her. There's this wonderful moment. You can watch it. This happens between one hour, five minutes, and 26 seconds, and one hour, 10 minutes, and 13 seconds in the final episode. This is a wonderful moment. She's come out, she's blasted everyone. And the truth is, if this had happened to any other character, we probably wouldn't be able to take it in a comedy. But in a drama, but given what she's done to other people throughout season one and throughout this season, watching her suffer is so wonderfully funny and sad. But now we've had this incredible turn and she has come into her own, we think. She's, she's killed the people who are going to kill her. And then we realize maybe she hasn't because Quentin is lying there bleeding on the floor. And she goes, is Greg having an affair? And we realize, oh, even after all of this, even after putting the puzzle pieces together, she's still so desperate. She's still so desperate for a man's love. She's never going to overcome her problem. Uh, all this culminates, of course, we're waiting to solve the murder. In the first season, we realize that Shane accidentally killed Armand. In season two, we're watching Tanya on the rail of the boat in her high heels, and she's going to make the jump down to the boat below her. And we're, we're so excited for her, right? It's so much fun to watch this character go on this giant journey. In fact, she even says to herself, you've got this. And then she trips over the railing, falls and hits her head on the rail of the boat below and drowns. And... This moment, believe it or not, is played for comedy, right? Because really what's happened is we've watched a character change and then come back to her dominant trait. And once again, we've solved the mystery, but in a way that out 
does our expectations. And then just like in season one, we're going to replicate that element. See, in season one, we thought Rachel and Shane were completely dead, but we're going to, in the airport, we're going to find a little moment of reconciliation that gives us a little piece of hope. And similarly, the same thing is going to happen at the end of season two. We're going to replicate the element that lets us end this comedy as dark as things got on a little piece of hope. We're going to see Albie and Portia bump into each other in the airport. They're going to acknowledge that they both got scammed. And we're going to get a little glimmer of hope that maybe something may blossom between the two of these sweet people after all. So this is the concept of engine, right? And this is a very important thing to understand about engine. You are not locked into your engine. You can play within your engine. You have to understand what are the main things we're coming for. And then as your seasons progress, you need to give those things a tweak so that you're constantly outdoing yourself. That might be turning it inside out. That might be playing with the audience's expectations. But the whole purpose of everything you're doing is looking, what are the elements that work? And how do I replicate those elements in one-to-one ways, in clear ways, and in complicated, subversive ways? How do I complicate those elements as I move from season to season, whether that's by doubling and tripling and complicating relationships, or whether that's by playing around with different aspects of the theme? How do I make each season and each episode feel the same, but also different? I hope that you're enjoying this podcast. If you're getting a lot out of it, there is so much more I'd like to share with you. Come check out all the wonderful programs we have, our ProTrack Mentorship Program that will pair you one-on-one with a professional writer who will meet with you every week or every other week and read every page you write and mentor you through your entire career for the tiniest fraction of the cost of grad school. Our foundation classes, our master classes, come check it out. It's all online, writeyourscreenplay.com.